0: This evening will be in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, but really just focusing on verse 4, but let's read beginning in verse 1. Paul writes this, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Gracious God, as we have turned to your word now, would you open our eyes and our minds to see Christ in all of his wondrous glory, and that our hearts would be inclined to worship Him and be stirred with all affection and adoration for Him. Would you remind us this hour of the wonder of Christ on the cross, Him crucified, our suffering Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, again, we've gathered this Good Friday evening to remember the suffering and death of our Lord Jesus on Calvary uh, 2,000 years ago. And so we've opened God's Word to help us meditate on the weight and glory of the cross. Now, you might be wondering, what in the world are we doing then in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where Paul is talking about a rock during Moses' day? You know, did our pastor bonk his head on something and get amnesia and forgot where we were supposed to be? Uh, I do do that quite often, actually. But no, we are exactly where we should be. We intend to be here in first corinthians chapter 10 uh, especially in verse 4 to focus on this little phrase where paul says that the rock was christ and you know it's a good question to ask even aside from good friday what is paul talking about here what does this even mean and i confess to you i've read this passage many times before um and and many for many years i would just Kind of gloss over it, and I assumed in reading it, oh yes, Jesus is a rock, he's very sturdy, reliable, uh, trustworthy, amen. But honestly, throughout all that time, I, I, I always felt uh, that I was missing something of vital importance and significance in what Paul was saying, because the Apostle Paul would not say something so direct and stark as, the rock was Christ, unless... There was something about this rock that really revealed to us the glory of our Lord Jesus. And that's what I want for us to think about uh, this evening. Because you see, this little passage, this little verse, this little phrase has everything to do with Good Friday. It has everything to do with the cross of our Lord on which he suffered for the sinners that he came to save. Now, in order to see the glory that is revealed here, we have to understand what Paul was thinking of and what he was pointing his readers to. Now, notice in verse 1, it says that our fathers, meaning our spiritual ancestors, were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Now, what does this sound like? Paul is talking about the exodus from Egypt when Israel crossed the Red Sea, which was split for them by the mighty hand of God. And then Paul talks about being baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And this is a whole other topic that I'll try to address another time. There's just really rich theology there, uh, kind of uh, outside of our scope for this evening. But suffice to say for now, this is all in the context of what happened with Israel after they left Egypt. Hence, we see in verse 3 that all ate the same spiritual food. This is talking about Exodus chapter 16, when God gave manna down from heaven, the food that he provided, which could not be found on earth or procured for themselves. And then Paul goes on, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from that spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. And here, Paul is talking about that very next chapter in Exodus, in chapter 17, when God gave water to the Israelites from a rock. And so when Paul says that the rock was Christ, he's pointing us to Exodus chapter 17. And so we need to follow Paul's signal and turn in our Bibles to Exodus chapter 17, because there we see Christ in the details of that account, in that incident uh, with the rock from which water flowed. Now, as you turn there, let me just kind of Help us get situated with the context of what we're dealing with by the time we get to Exodus chapter 17, okay? Because in Exodus chapter 12, that's where we saw the 10th plague, right? The final plague, uh, which was then followed by the actual Exodus, the exit out of Egypt. And, you know, the people of Israel were begged to leave by the Egyptians once they experienced the mighty power and judgment of the one true God of Israel. And so they left Egypt in chapter 12 uh, and in chapter 14, you see the actual crossing of the Red Sea where the angel of God was guiding and protecting them with the pillar of cloud as they crossed the sea. And again, Israel crossed uh, to the other side safely on dry land, whereas the Egyptians were totally decimated by the waters. And then you go to chapter 15, you see the song of Moses, which we see was sung by both Moses and the Israelites praising God for the greatness of his saving power and might. Now, everything sounds great thus far until we begin to see a perpetual pattern of Israel's stubbornness and disobedience to God. In spite of all that they witnessed and experienced, the wonder of God displayed on their behalf to protect them, to save them, and to deliver them. And so it says in in chapter 15, verse 22, that Israel journeyed through the wilderness of Shur and they got thirsty after three days. But rather than, when they got thirsty, rather than trusting the God who proved himself to be the sovereign Lord over even water, even massive bodies of water, and instead of seeking him for provision, it says in verse 24 that the people grumbled. You see, they were starting to rebel against God. But there, God was gracious and provided them water miraculously. And he solemnly instructed them in verse 26 to be diligent, to listen, to obey, and to trust him. And he will continue to be their all-sufficient protector and healer. Well, we get to chapter 16, as I mentioned earlier, the account of manna falling from heaven. And again, it's a wonderful account of God's supernatural provision, but... The circumstance in which this manna came about was not because Israel asked it by faith, but instead they got hungry and they grumbled yet again. I guess this is where we find biblical precedent for being hangry. You see that first in Israel here in the Old Testament. But there we see in verse 3 of chapter 16, Israel said to God, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. It's actually kind of delusional. That's not really what happened in Egypt. But they were saying in their rebellion, Egypt was so much better than this. God should have just left us alone. That is wicked. That is ungrateful. It is such a repugnant attitude of rebellion and and irreverence which is horribly insulting to God and yet what did God do he was still gracious to provide undeserved food down from heaven but that's not the end of the story because Israel keeps doubling down tripling down quadrupling down on their rebellion because God told Moses when he sent manna down he said okay look I'm gonna test these people By implementing the Sabbath. I'm going to teach them to stop trusting themselves and to start trusting me. And so here's what I'm going to do, Moses. I'm going to send a day's worth of food each day from heaven. But on the sixth day, I'm going to send a double portion. And it's going to be enough to cover the next day. But then on the seventh day, on the Sabbath, I'm not going to send any. Because again, they had enough for two days worth on the sixth day. So... They better not go looking for food on the seventh day. But, lo and behold, in verse 27, it says, On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? Can you almost hear God's righteous frustration and indignation at their rebellion, their sinfulness? You see, Israel kept proving themselves to be utterly stubborn-hearted and defiant against God, despite all that God had done for them and was continuing to do for them. This was the continual trajectory of God's people from the moment they left Egypt, stiff-necked in unbelief, infuriating God by questioning his character and mocking his sufficiency. And so God was not pleased. He was angry with Israel. And rightly so, they were deserving of his judgment. And with this in mind, we come now to the very next chapter in chapter 17, where we intended to be, where Israel was continuing their journey through the wilderness toward Sinai. And it says in verse 1 that again, there was no water for the people to drink. Now remember, just a few weeks before, at the end of chapter 15, God miraculously provided water. I mean, you could have learned from that. And you could trust God, but what do they do? Verse 2, Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? You see, although the people were arguing with Moses, Moses knew that they were ultimately arguing with God. That's why he says, why do you test the Lord? And at the end of the day, they were questioning God's character. Why did you bring us out of Egypt? He is not a good God. He is an evil God. He intends only to do us harm and to take away from us. We can protect and provide for ourselves better than he can for us. Again, this is the wickedness of sin on full display, an utter rejection of God in their hearts. And it is for such rebellion that God must judge them. It is so outrageously blasphemous that they who experienced such grace and deliverance and benevolence from the Almighty God would now curse Him with all kinds of slander, and defamation of his character. Rather than blessing him with thanksgiving and trust. They were like what Paul describes unbelievers to be in Romans 1.21. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And so Paul later explains in verse 32. God's righteous decree is that such people deserve to die. You see, God had every right in that moment to destroy all of Israel. Then and there, that's what they deserve. As the thankless ingrates that they were, It's what God should have done. However, what did God do in response? He was unimaginably merciful and gracious to again provide undeserved water from the rock for their blessing and nourishment but the glory of this passage is in the details of how God gave them water what did God instruct Moses to do and why this is the key question and this is Paul's main point in directing us to Exodus chapter 17 because look at what God says in verse 4 he says So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. Now look, God could have given... Water, without all this protocol of striking the rock with the staff, I mean, he could have just commanded water to flow from the rock. But God gave these specific instructions to teach them a visual object lesson of his grace, which was really a vivid preview of the gospel. Because notice these details. God tells Moses to strike the rock using the same staff With which he struck the Nile River. Now remember, that was the first plague of the 10 plagues in which God turned the Nile River into blood. Remember? And this plague was the inaugural judgment of God upon Egypt. And this is why when you look carefully in Exodus chapter 7, verse 17, in that first plague, God himself says, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. For behold, with the staff that is in, is God speaking, he says, With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water in the Nile. Even though Moses was the one who physically held the staff in his hand, he was acting as God's instrument because God was the one who, who by his own hand held the staff, and struck that river as an act of judgment. It represented his rod of judgment. And all throughout the Old Testament, God repeatedly uses this word, strike, to represent him judging and acting on his judgment against sin. That's why in the 10th plague you see in Exodus chapter 12, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians and their firstborn. And you see in the Mosaic Covenant, in Deuteronomy 28, you see all the blessings for obedience, but all the curses for disobedience. And so God says, if you disobey, the Lord will strike you with all of these curses and judgments. And at the end, in Revelation chapter 19, you see that when Jesus returns in judgment, it says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which he strikes down the nations. And here in Exodus 17, God tells Moses to strike the rock with that rod of judgment. Why? Because notice what God says in verse 6. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock. And you shall strike the rock. See, the same word that God used throughout the plagues of judgment on Egypt, I will strike the Nile River. I will strike the land of Egypt. I will strike all of their firstborn. And here God was essentially telling Moses, take that staff of judgment. That 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 should be striking Israel. And I want you to strike me with it. And when you do, only when you do, Moses, then water will flow to bless Israel and nourish these undeserving, rebellious, sinful people who actually deserve to be stricken with judgment? Do you now see why Paul said that the rock was Christ? Because through this rock, God was revealing the gospel through a visual preview of the cross. Because God must strike and punish sinners who have rebelled against Him, all of us, But God struck himself for us. This is the gospel. This is what was happening on the cross in the fullest measure. Because 2,000 years ago on this Good Friday, God incarnate was stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. The cross of our Lord Jesus was the ultimate final revelation of the rock At Horeb. Because there, God himself, in human flesh, took upon himself the wrath and judgment and eternal plague that was due unto sinners like us. Rebels. Disobedient people. And this is why the Apostle John records this little detail at the cross. When Jesus' dead body was pierced with the spear, he says that blood and water flowed. Why, Why does... John say that? I mean, you know, the, the water could have been fluid from the pericardial sac or it could have been some other region of the chest cavity. But regardless of the precise medical explanation, why would John find this observation important? Because he was showing that Jesus is the ultimate rock of ages, cleft for us and water flowed from him when he was stricken. Christ is the incarnation of Exodus chapter 17, the very embodiment of all that was revealed there to Israel. And this is why Paul tells us that the rock was Christ. And indeed, Jesus of Nazareth is our Lord, our rock and our Redeemer, who took the place of sinners like us and bore the judgment of God for all who trust in Him. You see, Good Friday is Good Friday Because on that day, the hands that should have stricken us were the very hands that were pierced for us. The holy God who should have come to strike us down in judgment. Instead, he permitted his own face to be stricken and spit on by the scoffers and mockers that he came to save Those eyes that had every right to burn with anger against sinners were the eyes that instead wept for sinners and looked upon them with mercy and forgiveness. And this is why that Friday, though horrific, gruesome, and appalling as it was, it is for us the most blessed Friday. It is the most important Friday that has ever transpired in the history Of the world. And it is this Friday which we proclaim to this world under the condemnation of sin that there is good news for sinners like us. There is one who has come to bear the judgment that is meant for us. That although the arrow of divine wrath was pointed at us, God placed his own Son before us in the crosshairs and did not relent in pulling the trigger. And so for all who confess their sin and trust His work of grace, mercy, and perfect justice on the cross, the the, the full measure of divine judgment was unleashed upon our suffering Savior, Jesus Christ, who hung on the cross in the agony and in the misery that you and I deserve. This is the love of God displayed in the gospel. And church, this day, really is our very lifeblood, our hope and our joy. You know, in many ways, as believers, we really need to learn to live every day of our lives as though it were Good Friday. Always remembering what God has done for us through Christ, His Son. You know, we forget this so often, all the time, that judgment has been not partially paid but fully paid and unleashed on christ and it is all a thing of the past so that now all that is left for us who have trusted in our lord jesus and turned to him by faith is the overflowing streams of god's love and pleasure over us flowing to us through christ his son the rock of ages just as it was for Israel in a preview kind of a sense. Now, although we truly deserve to be destroyed with judgment, to receive not only 10 plagues, but really 10,000 plagues, eternal place for all of our unrighteousness and rebellion, because we have put our hope in our rock and our Redeemer, there is instead a steady tide of the living waters of God's grace and kindness pouring out from His heart. And it is a tide that is steady and unchanging on our best days and on our worst days as Christians. And isn't that amazing that just as we see God blessing the rebellious ingrates of Israel with thirst-quenching water from the rock, so we know that the gospel is the ultimate blessing of God's delight and love to sinners who were once hostile to Him. You see... I think we sometimes make the mistake that the gospel is just that God cancels debt and brings spiritually bankrupt souls like us, brings us back to zero. But that's actually not the full gospel. The gospel is that God not only cancels our insurmountable debt at the cost of his son, but that he also makes us once bankrupt beggars into his Dear own children, he makes us filthy, rich children of the Most High King because we are considered fellow heirs with Christ, as Romans 8.17 says. And the riches that have been lavished upon us in Christ, the riches that we can now presently enjoy, is that we get to sit at the King's table, not as one-time guests or even as his hired servants, Though a privilege that is in and of itself, but as his very own sons and daughters, and this is the marvelous wonder of God's grace, in that He gives to the worst of sinners the best of Himself, and this is the joy of communion, the the immense blessing of taking the Lord's Supper as as gathered children of His, because as we take the bread and the cup, we must remember by faith that God truly has nothing but love and deep pleasure over us. For Him to have any hint of judgment against us would actually be to blaspheme Him and the sufficiency of His grace. And it's a hard thing to believe sometimes, isn't it? And so this meal is given to us as a visible expression and a visible, tangible confirmation of his highest love and affection toward us, not because of anything we have done, but because everything Christ has done, and because we are united to him by faith, God looks upon us with, with beaming joy and satisfaction. You are my beloved child with you, I am well pleased, and so He invites us to the table to nourish us with the spiritual food and drink of his love conveyed to us in the person and work. Of our Lord Jesus, who on this day, 2,000 years ago, he paid our every debt, he took our every punishment, and he finished our every requirement of God's law, so that we might daily enjoy the blessing of fellowship with God. And so as we ready our hearts to take the Lord's Supper, let's praise God in our hearts for this most wonderful Friday that he accomplished for us on that bloody cross. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we are so thankful, inexpressibly grateful, for all that you have done for us and revealed to us in Christ. Lord, what a joy and grace that the Israelites got to taste on that rock at Horeb. But Lord, what an amazing thought that that was only a shadow, But tonight, we remember and we rejoice in the actual reality that the shadow was only pointing to and that all of it was fully revealed for us on the cross. And Lord, as we now prepare to take your supper that you so graciously feed us with, we pray that you would bless this meal, this ordinary bread and this ordinary cup, but that you would bless it as we set it apart for your most holy, supernatural, extraordinary purpose of feeding our souls with a reminder of the basic essence of the gospel that Jesus has paid it all and that we so joyfully proclaim his death and his body and blood given for us. Lord, would you confirm those promises to us in the weakness of our faith? We ask this.